before we look into uh, the scripture this morning, am I on yet? Is that good? Okay. Um, one other announcement. I hold in my hands here a, uh, an award that was given to Harbor yesterday at the, uh, the AIDS walk after party. Uh, it took place yesterday. Melanie Gray and I were there. Uh, Melanie's the uh, Mercy Director for Uptown. <clears throat> and uh, we were given this award as the top faith-based um, fundraisers uh, for the whole AIDS walk this year. And so that's, that's on you all. So thank you for your generosity. We ended up raising $6,001. Um, my son Nathan says he's responsible for the one because he gave a dollar to uh, one of the runners, or one of the walkers actually, and uh, I said, well, I think everybody kind of had a part in that $1. But, um, but yeah, so it was, a, it was a wonderful time yesterday. We got a chance to, it's always great to receive an award, especially in a community where the church usually isn't really thought of very highly. Uh, I had a great opportunity to share um, just our, about our own church with a number of folks, um, some who have seen our, our mailers that go out, um, others who just you know, were excited that, uh, that a church was willing to help love. Uh, the community and, and be a part of the AIDS walk. So, um, so thank you for that. And this will be up in the Harbor office if any of y'all want to, and I'll have it too. So if you want to come take, take a closer look at it, but that's a, that's a wonderful blessing. Just a wonderful blessing from the Lord. So wanted to announce that. But we're looking now um, in first Samuel today, we're going to be looking at first Samuel chapter 28. If you don't have your Bibles with you, the scripture is printed in the bulletin there on page six with the place to take notes on page 7. So give ear now. This is God's Word. See, now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came, and Saul gathered all Israel When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Get for me a woman who is a medium, that I may inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then she said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And she said, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? 
Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give Israel with you into the hand of the Philistine, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my own hand and have listened to you. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused. But his servants urged him with the woman, and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had fattened a calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is God's word. Well, we're starting our final mini-series in this book of Samuel for this fall. Uh, It's living today when you know what's coming. I think you can kind of begin to guess why we titled it in this way. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about what do you do when you're at wit's end? It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, what do you do when you've reached the end of your rope? When you don't know what to do? When you're in that place, what do you do? Where do you go? We're going to watch Saul. He is clearly at wit's end in this text. And we're going to see his response, his actions, his words, what he does. And in that, hopefully, we're going to learn a little bit from him. Okay, what we're going to see today, three points as, uh, as we look at this text. You can write them down there on page 7. First, we're going to see how to interpret God's silence. Okay, how to interpret God's silence. Secondly, how to respond to God's silence. And then third, how God responds to our response. Okay, so how to interpret God's silence, how to respond to God's silence, and then how, to re- how God responds to our response. So first, how to interpret God's silence. I mean, in this text, Saul is clearly afraid, right? Fear, if you chase down, just count up the number of times the word fear is, is, is used or made reference to. Saul is, he is being gripped by his fear. The Philistines were attacking. Okay, they had marshaled their armies, and this wasn't just a border skirmish. If the Philistines are successful here, where they're attacking will actually split the nation of Israel into north and south. And so if they're successful, this will leave Israel divided and undefensible. Okay, so this is a significant attack. And Saul's fear is made worse by the silence from God. 
Okay, verse 6 says that Saul sought the Lord and he got no response. He mentions dreams. Um, he mentions the Urim. He mentions the prophets. Yeah, this is really, you know, prophet, priest, and king here, right? In Scripture, the kings are often granted dreams by God in order to help them understand either what's to come or, 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 or what they should do. There are no dreams for Saul. The Urim is the instrument that was used by the priests, right? Well, and if you've been with us, you know what happened to the priests. Saul killed them all, right? So there's no, there's no surprise. The only surviving priest is actually Abiathar, and he's with David, okay? And there's no prophets because Samuel's dead, and the only other prophet that we hear about in the text is Gad, and Gad is also with David. And so Saul, I mean, he's facing something that's terrifying you know loss of kingdom loss of authority loss of his dynasty with the philistines and when he goes to the lord he gets nothing he gets nothing and so his reaction is one that shows in a sense this is kind of the long drawn out process right we've watched this we've watched saul kind of falling apart and coming you know coming unglued you know and i think here what we're seeing one author said this was saul dying from the inside out dying from the inside out he is finally at the place where the silence from god is unbearable it's almost like up to this point he could handle being apart from god but now he can't handle it anymore any of you feeling that way like you're dying from the inside out like you've been struggling with something and you feel like it's just about to break you know, that that straw has just dropped and it's about to land on the load that you're already carrying? <laughs> I mean, this is where Saul is right now. Now, why isn't God responsive? It's, it's a good question, right? Why is God being silent here? The Bible says, you know, call on the Lord and the day that he can be heard and you'll find him, right? God says, seek me and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Ask and it shall be given to you. And yet Saul seeks and does not find. He knocks and nobody answers. Why is God being silent? Maybe you've asked that question, where you've cried out to the Lord and said, God, where are you? And you feel like you get nothing. I mean, why does God sometimes respond in silence? There's a couple of answers. I think the first answer is, and this may sound harsh, but there does come a point in time in life when God stops calling. Okay? We have to come to grips with this. Sometimes we have this image of God where he's just sort of begging for people to come and he'll do anything to get you to come. And it's almost like, you know, we treat God sometimes like a, an emotionally abusive relationship. You know, where we really do treat God like, yeah, when I need you, I'll come and I'll ask you for stuff. And then when I get it, I'm going to leave, right? I mean, we do this to God. We're tempted to do this all the time. There is a time, I mean, what we're seeing here, there is a time when you could get to the point in your life where when you seek, God will stop responding. I mean, this is what's happening to Saul. We find out in verse 18 later, Samuel tells him it's because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. And this is interesting. Jesus 
says something similar in Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Here's what Jesus said. He says, take care then how you hear. Okay, take care how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Jesus says, be careful how you hear. How attentive are you when you hear the word of God? When you hear it preached, when you read it, are you listening to God and his word? If you ignore it, it will ultimately be taken away from you. It's kind of interesting. It's like if you begin to walk down the road of, I won't listen, the farther down the road you get, there's a point at which this road becomes not, I won't listen, but I can't listen. I mean, this is the danger. I mean, we're going to watch Saul. We're going to evaluate what Saul does here. And the solution over and over again seems so simple. And it feels like Saul has crossed this line from won't listen to can't listen. And it's a warning to all of us. I'm not sure that you could come up with a more hopeless misery in life than verse 15. Verse 15, Saul says, I'm in great distress. The Philistines are warring against me, but then God has turned away from me and answers me no more. One author said these are the saddest words in the Bible. God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Here's what's interesting. As we feel a little bit of the weight of that, I think it actually helps put our own struggles into perspective. Okay? We've been sort of seeing, well, this is a picture of Saul. We've been watching David. and We've seen how David's been suffering. Right? His trouble, it's no light trial that he's dealing with, right? He's got enemies all around him. At this point in this text, David is actually with the Philistines now, trying to figure out how not to get killed by them. Right? And so David's going through some stuff. He still has Saul chasing him. He's going through all of this. But it seems like Saul is in an even worse situation. I mean, when you compare the two, he's without the word of God. God has turned away from him. Here's one quote I found. I just, I got to read this. One author said, Believer, put your trials in context. You may be exhausted from work. In fact, your employer may be giving you a raw deal, dealing unjustly, underhandedly with you. You may have lost your health or family troubles are now cropping up. This text says there's something far worse. Do you realize what a solace it is that in the face of all of your losses, all of your pressures, all of your disappointments, that you have ready and constant access to the smile of God and his throne of grace. Do you know that no one, no thing can take that away from you? This doesn't mean that you don't feel real pain, right? This doesn't mean that you don't really suffer in the midst of your trials. It's not you should be ashamed of yourself at all because our suffering is real. Our pain is real. The pressures are real. 
right? The conflict that we deal with is real. But let's just keep it in perspective. How amazing is it that we have access to God and his word? That we have access to a word that literally gives life, that restores hope, that increases faith, that puts joy in us, that fills us with love. I mean, these are the things that we need when we can't make the trials go away. But this doesn't answer the question of Saul. What do you do when the trial is that God won't speak? Okay, right? I mean, what do you do when that's your trial? What do you do when you feel like you've been cut off from God? How do you interpret that? Well, again, on the one hand, you could say, maybe I've gotten to the point where I can't hear him anymore. Maybe you're at the point where you just are, you won't hear him. No matter where you are right now, you have a chance today to hear and respond to God's word. So if you think you're in the can't here anymore, if you can hear the sound of my voice, then God can still reach you. You can still reach back out to him. Okay, so understand that. What's interesting, though, is that sometimes silence, okay, so sometimes silence is an indication that God has taken away his word from you. More often than that, more often, God's silence is also a statement from God. And that statement is that there is no new revelation. Okay, Let let me explain what I mean. God is basically saying, sometimes in his silence, you already know what to do. Does that make sense? Sometimes, God, where are you? God, what do I do in this situation? God, you need to help me know what to do. And God's saying, you know, it's, it's really clear what you're supposed to do. I mean, do you really wonder what you're supposed to do? I mean, there are complicated situations, don't get me wrong. There are things where we honestly don't know Gosh, do I go this way? Do I go that way? What decision do I make? But more often than not, more often than not, when our hearts are directed and, we, and our desire is to love God, to love our neighbors, we know what to do. I mean, I loved what Bill said last week, you know, that the things that he struggles with most in the Bible aren't the things he can understand, but it's the stuff that he can understand and really just has a hard time putting into practice. I mean, it's the same thing for us. I remember hearing a preacher talk and say once, prayer is not a substitute for action. And sometimes we hide behind that. Oh, I'm praying to know what to do. And it's like, you know what to do. (laughs) You know what to do. And so sometimes God's silence is just him saying, I've already spoken. You don't need to hear this again. And that's definitely something that God is trying to communicate to Saul. Right? What does Saul need to hear? You know, really? I mean, this is actually kind of, this has sort of like been a common test that Saul has had to deal with. I mean, this is the same test that God saw into trouble at the outset of his reign. You know, God, or Samuel, Samuel God in chapter 13 said, you show up here, wait, and I will offer the, Samuel will offer the sacrifices. Okay? And so Saul waits. For seven days he waits, and when seven days are up, he gets to the point where he says, "Well, you know, the people are the, the army's starting to leave. They're about to go into battle. Saul's really struggling and frustrated, 
and he kind of says, well, I don't know what to do here. Samuel's not here. The God is, God is silent. And so Saul then goes and offers the sacrifices himself, breaks God's law, doesn't do what God told him. And right after he offers the sacrifices, Samuel shows up, right? It's kind of one of those, oh, if I just waited another 20 minutes, you know, or another hour, you know, this wouldn't have happened. But so for Saul, Saul's got a problem with patience. He failed to wait for God back then. He didn't obey God's revealed word back then. And God is saying, like, what more do you want to hear from me? Saul, what you need here is not new revelation. You need to come back. You need to come back. And what's amazing is that even now, Saul could come back if he wanted to. Even now, God says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is verses 13 and 14. God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. how are you doing with listening to God? Is God being silent in areas because he's already spoken to you? I mean, do you know what it is that God wants from you and you just aren't willing to abide by it? This is a great promise. I mean, if you're in that place, humble yourself. Confess your sins. Turn from your ways. Seek God's face. He will hear and heal. That's for you right now. Right now, if you do that, he will show up. And you'll continue to hear him speak. It's great because he heals you and he'll heal the city. Heals the land. So what does Saul actually do? Well, his response is not in that direction. His response is not Godward. He actually really begins to forfeit his position and himself in his response. He stops acting like the king and he runs farther away from God. Verse 7, he compromises and violates his own law. Right? Get for me a woman who's a medium. I mean, it's interesting. He's, he's, like, he's denying his own reign as king, we could say. He's the king. He set the law. It was a righteous law. It reflected God's own law in Deuteronomy. And now he's going back on it. He's rejecting his own kingship here. And it's interesting because here's what happens. When you do this, whether or not you're the one who sets the laws, when you know what's right and what's wrong and you choose to go against that, you're actually tearing yourself inside. Um, the Harry Potter books, I don't know if any of you read them, really wonderful books. I know there's a lot of people that have problems with them, wizards, witches, stuff like that. We can talk about that another time. But, um, but the character Voldemort, the evil Satan character in the book, he, he builds these things called horcruxes. Okay? And what they are, he divides his soul. Okay? He divides his soul and he puts pieces of his soul in different things and the, the hero's got to go out and find these things and destroy them and then he can destroy it. Voldemort, but 
it's this amazing image because in order to actually do this, you have to do something heinously wicked, like you have to commit murder. And so when you commit murder, the act of doing that sort of tears your soul in half. You know, and I just think it's this amazing image of really what goes on inside of us. And I think if you'll look, I mean, even when it's not murder, even, but it's just when we know the right thing and we don't do it, it causes a tearing in us. Like we become less of who we are, in a sense. I mean, you almost have to experience more than, more than describe it. But it's that, it's that road that leads us down hypocrisy. I mean, because that's ultimately what this is. Here you have classic case of, of a hypocritical leader. Okay, and it's even worse because this is the hypocritical leader who is railing against the sin that he's committing. Right? Because he passed a law. He had banished all the mediums and the necromancers, and yet he's willing, when it suits him, to compromise the standard and go after one of these folks. Right? And go appeal to him. And I was thinking, I mean, especially in ministry, I mean, I don't know, you've got to be careful when somebody rails too much against a particular sin, right? I mean, I think even society has learned this, that when someone really goes after a particular sin, that sometimes they're hiding what's going on inside of them. Um, you know, I was thinking about Ted Haggard, you know, which is just, he's just one example, one example of this. And we just, again, this is where it leads. So it's just, I mean, not only is it, I mean, I beg you just for the sake of the glory of God to serve him, right? And, and to, to listen to his word and abide by it. But it's just, even aside from that, it's horribly unhealthy to build a life around hypocrisy, to build a life around when you're saying one thing and doing something else. Um, it's not just the, the, the right thing. It's the good thing for you. It brings health to your bones. This is why the law of the Lord brings health and life and blessing. It's because you end up lining up with who you really are. You're honest about your failures. And it produces a health and, uh, and a strength in a person. And so, but for Saul, unfortunately, he's going through this process. He's spiraling out of control. He has been, we're kind of seeing him now at the end of his rope here. One author said this, I thought this was fascinating. That this episode shows Saul's moral exhaustion, his despairing faith, and his failed life. Good summary. I mean, really good summary. But that idea of the moral exhaustion just made me think. Is morality exhausting for you? I mean, is it hard? Is it tiring? Do you feel like being what God wants you to be is exhausting? Do you kind of struggle and sort of like, oh, man, do I really have to do this? You're dragging your feet. You know, you look like my, my kids when I tell them to clean the house. And, you know, um, I mean, there are times when we get that way, right? There are times when it really does feel that way. And I think it's interesting because morally let's see exhausting morality is i think just the flip side of immorality okay i think they're actually two sides of the same coin okay if morality is exhausting for you because you really don't want to do it then the question is why are you doing it are you doing it to try to earn favor with god are you doing it to try to earn points with other people i mean these are <laughs> these are buckets that you can never fill that's why it's exhausting because if you're trying to obey, if you're trying to have a moral life so that you can earn something with God or somebody else, you'll never, ever be satisfied. You know, it's almost like moral morality for some people 
becomes as much all about them controlling their life as immorality, right? With immorality, you're sort of throwing off God's law and saying, I'm going to do it my way. Well, with this exhausting morality, you're kind of doing the same thing. You're saying, if I obey these things, then I'm going to be this. You know, I'm going to earn this, or I'm going to have this. And so they're really sort of two ways of ignoring a relationship with God. And so, I mean, for Saul... I mean, he's not interpreting this right. <clears throat> For us, though, when God is silent, we've got to be careful that we're not walking too far down this road and come running back, or we need to realize that God's already spoken. Those are the ways to interpret God's silence. This brings us to our second point. How do you respond? So once you've interpreted it rightly, how do you respond to God's silence? Well, for Saul, Saul goes through what I'm going to call a false repentance. Okay, I mean, it's false because as you look through the text, Saul seeks after a medium and not after God, right? He calls for Samuel, not for God. Verse 14, Saul falls on his face, but before Samuel, not before God. Verse 15, Saul complains, but doesn't confess. You know, verse 20, Saul hadn't eaten for a whole day and a whole night, but he's not fasting. I mean, he's kind of going through all of the outward workings that would look like repentance. It would look like trying to change his life, but none of this has anything to do with God. Saul says to Samuel, tell me what to do, verse 15, but he doesn't do what Samuel wants him to do. It's almost like Saul wants to start over. Like, okay, maybe I'll go back and I'll call back on Samuel and he'll tell me what to do and it'll be like the old days when Samuel was at my side and and everything was great. But Saul doesn't realize that you can't start over without confession. I mean, that's why we confess our sins every Sunday. It's basically to catch all of us because if you haven't been confessing through the week, we're not going to let you go seven days without doing it. Okay? We're going to remind you to try to build in you a pattern to keep staying clean with the Lord. And so what we see here with Saul, though, is that there's none of that. Um, Channeling, I mean, this idea of channeling, it, it offers spiritual experience without any of the inconveniences of a relationship or a commitment. Think about it that way. All the experience without the inconveniences of a relationship or a commitment. You can channel. You don't have to deal with God. You can have this spiritual thing happen, right? You can experience spirituality, but there's no God on the other end. There's no relationship there. I mean, I think it's almost the spiritual form of sex outside of marriage. If you think about it. Saul's quest should have been face-to-face with God. Not, not to prepare for a battle, but just to recover God's presence. I mean, that's what he should have been doing. That's what he should have been aiming for, but he's not. And I think this highlights a major difference between Saul and David. Because for Saul, Saul wants the gifts, not the giver. <clears throat> David wanted the giver so he could be patient with the gifts. 
And it's interesting, I think David's approach comes out in Psalm 13, right? The psalm we read, in our assurance of forgiveness. Psalm 13, when David is terrified at God's absence, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? When David is afraid of God's absence, who's he complaining to? He's complaining to God. He's staying in the presence of God. He's saying, God, why are you far away from me? You know, he's still honest. David experienced the exact same thing that Saul did. But David goes to the giver and says, my problem isn't that I don't have wisdom to face the Philistines. My problem isn't that I don't have this relationship in my life. My problem isn't that I don't know what to do. My problem is, God, that I don't, I'm not close to you. I don't feel your presence. And I think this really, this helps us. This really helps us. You know, because we want to ask ourselves when we feel the silence, the question is, what are we worried about the most? Like, what is the concern most when you sense God's absence? Is it the gift or the giver? Right? It's a really good diagnostic for us. And so, for us, the response to God's silence, we have a choice. I mean, that's really where it comes down. Do you want the gift or the giver? If you want the gift, then I don't think you're on the right road. Then you're kind of on the Saul road and you're seeking after something that's not ever going to fulfill you, even if you got it. Even if you got it, you'd still be without the relationship with God. And so Saul is a great example of how not to respond to the silence of God, but instead take your cries to the face of God. And don't let him go. Don't let God go. Be like, be like Jacob, who wrestled with God all night long, And when God wanted to leave, Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Even Psalm 88, that's one of the best psalms in the Bible because there's no happy ending. There's no happy ending. See, in Psalm 13 that we read, David reassures himself because he's trusted in God. He remembers his salvation. He can go on. Psalm 88, there's no hope at the end of Psalm 88. And the fact that it's in the Bible means that there will be times in your life when you will cry out to God, wondering where is he, and you will still not feel the happy ending necessarily. But that psalm is there to tell you, keep hanging on. God will show up. He will answer. He will draw near to you. If you hold on to him, he will draw near. So that's our response to God's silence. Our last point, how does God respond to our response? And God responds, interestingly, with both judgment and kindness. Judgment and kindness. Verse 16, this is depressing. This is depressing. Samuel said, Why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? So God's response to Saul is that I'm not, I'm not talking to you because I'm your enemy. I'm against you. I'm in opposition to you. 
I mean, this is startling, but it's true. I mean, God's, God loves the world, right? God loves his people. He wants to care for them, protect them, lead them. He wants to be their shepherd, to lead them into green pastures and still waters. And he appointed a king to protect his people. He appointed a king to lead them into worship. He appointed a king to be an example to them of what it means to worship God and to put him first and foremost. If the king can bow his knee to God in heaven, then surely the rest of the people will. And what Saul has done isn't just to cut himself off from God. But in a sense, Saul has set the example and he has set the tone in the whole nation for all of God's people to ignore God. Saul also hasn't been diligent. This is verse 18. Because you didn't obey God's voice and carry out wrath against the the Amalekites. These were people who were oppressing God's people. And God called Saul to destroy them to bring his judgment against them, and Saul didn't do that. And so God is saying, I am against you because you're not protecting my people. You are not doing what I called you to do. You are not acting as a human representative of me in how you care for the people. And so I've done done exactly what I said I was going to do. Verse 17, I'm taking away the kingdom from your hand, and I've given it to David. And it's interesting because it's just like Eli and his sons. If you remember all the way back to chapter 2 and 4, right? The priests were doing the same thing. They were corrupting the people. They were corrupting the worship of God. And God said, I'm going to come in judgment. I will not allow these kind of evil rulers to stay in power. And so for Saul, he knows it's over. So he collapses to the ground and he's shattered. I mean, in a sense, at the beginning, he was at wit's end dealing with the silence of God, but now it's confirmed. Now he's got nothing. And what's interesting, though, is that in the midst of this judgment, God shows kindness. There's kindness that God shows to Saul. You know, just the fact that he got the announcement. Saul, Samuel says, look, tomorrow, in this battle, you and your sons are going to die. I mean, just getting the announcement, he now has a chance. He's got 24 hours to get ready. Now, I I can't tell you how many people I've met who have said, wow, you know what, I really like what you're saying about Jesus. I think I understand this good news. I get it. But you know what? I'm just going to wait until later in my life. I'm just, I I don't want to deal with it now. There's too many other things that I'm dealing with right now. I want to, I'll deal with this later on in my life. I mean... I wish we could offer this to people, right? I mean, I wish we could tell somebody, look, we know now, the clock's ticking, you have 24 hours. You need to get right with the Lord. You need to get your relationship right. You need to be ready. You're going to stand before him in 24 hours. Boy, if that was the message today, if your name was in this message from Samuel, what things would you need to get right over the next 24 hours? I mean, is it relationships, conflict? Is there stuff in your life you need to confess? I mean, we don't know. Most of you probably have more than 24 hours, right? I mean, we have no guarantees, but you look at life. The problem is 
That's God's kindness. The fact that you've got more than 24 hours, right? How patient is God with us to give us 70 years, 80 if we're strong, right? I know not everybody gets those number of years, but, but he's so patient. And it's his kindness. He wants us to work. I mean, think about Saul, right? Saul, this isn't the first time Saul's been warned. It's probably been decades since chapter 13. Decades. And God has striven with Saul and said, look, come on, come back, come back, come back, come back. He's given Saul every reason in the world to come back. He's shown him his goodness. Mm. What we see here, I mean, there is a point where God's patience comes to an end. There is a point where God says, okay, enough. Enough, I've warned you over and over and over again. I've invited you back. I've pleaded with you. And so I think even in the announcement, we see that there's kindness from God. The other thing, kindness from the woman. I mean, Saul has hit the bottom. Right? There is nowhere for him to go. And even in that place, it seems like God. I mean, this is odd and it's weird. And obviously this woman is of ill repute in so many ways because she's a medium and not doing things that she's supposed to do. But God provides someone there for him who cares for him just as he is. Like this woman doesn't rail on Saul, you know, for anything other than to make sure he eats. And so she shows him grace. She gives him strength through the food that she gives him so that Saul can actually live another day. Right? And so even here, God is giving Saul what he needs so that Saul would come back. And now I think as we look and take a step back, in this final standoff, really, between Saul and God, because that's kind of what we're seeing, I think we see something amazing. Everybody, every human being has some kind of a relationship with God, right? Christians or not, everybody, you know, believers and atheists both, have a, a, a sort of relationship, have a kind of relationship with God. And I think every single one of these relationships has one thing in common. Okay, there is a phrase that is said in every relationship. In every single relationship that God has with every single human being on the face of the earth that's ever listed, there is a phrase, and someone says it. Okay? Either you say the phrase or God does. Okay, but someone says it in every single relationship. And that phrase is your will be done. Okay, someone says it. God invites us to say it to him. Okay, and then he fills this world and our lives with goodness, with blessing, with joy, with beauty, with happiness, so that we'll trust him enough to say it. Right? The world's also filled with brokenness and pain, ways that we've pretty much mucked up the good world that God has made. We see things that are beyond our wisdom and our control, and all of that is also designed to get us to not trust ourselves enough so that we would say to God, your will be done. But if we're not willing to say it, when we don't say this, we're cutting ourselves off from God. Right? We are separating ourselves from him, and when we do that, we also cut ourselves off from his gifts. That's what Saul is going through. And when we don't say it, God does. Okay? When we don't say, 
God, your will be done, and we cut ourselves off from him, God will say to you, your will be done. Who is saying it in your relationship with God? And to me, the only hope I have, because I can tell you there have been a lot of times in my life where I haven't said, God, your will be done, where I've been unwilling to bow my knee to him. And then even after becoming a Christian, I've found that there are portions of my life where I've said, in this area of my life, God, no. Like, don't ask me to do this. Not, (laughs) let my will be done here. My own experience is that in those areas of my life, those things don't go well, typically. I don't experience happiness. I experience a lot of death, a lot of darkness, a lot of despair, loneliness. And so, this is for all of us, Christians, and non-Christians. You know, with non-Christians, sometimes it's the whole direction of your life where you're not saying, God, your will be done. But then for Christians, there are areas of our life that we need to examine. Relationships, work, family, I mean, sins that we deal with. Are we willing to say this? And if you're struggling, I'm going to bring you to the cross. The only prayer that was ever not answered for Jesus was his prayer to not have to go to the cross. Jesus said, God, take this cup from me. Don't make me do this. And then right after that, he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus said that. And for him to say, God, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. For Jesus to say, your will be done, it meant death. It meant torture. It meant separation from God. It meant Silence. It meant being forsaken by God, going into the darkness and even worse than Saul went through. And he did it for you. He did it so that when you say to God, your will be done, it can mean blessing. It can mean hope. Because now you have the God of the universe in control of your life. You have him caring for you. You have him making all things work together for good for you. For you, that is, I mean, if that's not a reason to fall on your face before Jesus and thank him and thank your lucky stars that you are sitting here able to hear it once again, to have a chance to respond once again, I don't know what is. Give up control of your life to Jesus. It is the most liberating, freeing, it's the most wonderful thing you will ever do. It is the most amazing thing, and God will, oh, God does all kinds of amazing, I mean, we're going to see what God does with David, who was willing to say this, God, not my will, you know, ready to kill Saul. I mean, we can run back through that. I don't want to do that, but just, if you're on the fence, and again, if you're not a believer and you're doing this for the first time, God will surround you with people who are in the same struggle as you are. They will do, they'll, they'll walk with you in this. You won't be alone. Not only will you have God, but you'll have other people. And Christians, if there are areas of your life that you're not saying this in yet, 
oh, there is no joy like the joy of releasing something that has been hidden far too long. Mm, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for being willing to say, for me, to God, your will be done. Thank you for accepting God's will, his will to put you to death so that it might put me to life. Jesus, draw people, Christians and non, into a closer relationship with you. Help more people in this room to be able to say to you, Jesus, your will be done. God, thank you that we can trust you, that you've been through this and gone through far worse so that we wouldn't have to. Draw us near. Draw us near. Amen.